0: Fidel Castro took power in Cuba in 1959 and remained its executive leader until 2008. It was a rule of almost 50 years. Castro has been a household name for Americans ever since he showed up, always with an air of infamy, a sense that he was one of the bad guys, like Stalin or Hitler. When he died in 2016, our country breathed a sigh of relief. And yet it was Fidel Castro who was responsible for the Cuban revolution all those years ago, rescuing Cubans from the hands of an oppressive, despotic government. When Cuba gained independence from Spain in 1898, no one could have foreseen the horrors that awaited them in the decades that followed, as Cuba's own government turned ineffective, then exploitative, then corrupt, then militant, and at last murderous. You are listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 80, Prelude to the Cuban Revolution. This episode is part of a larger series on the Cuban Revolution. If you haven't already, start by listening to episode 79 about the Bay of Pigs invasion. All right, race, getting to know you question today is what is a never have I ever that people would be surprised to hear you say? So I thought a lot about this. Um,
1: I, I don't feel like I have an excellent answer, but I got a couple. Um, so I've never broken a bone. Oh, OK. Which I feel like is, you know, mildly interesting. I've never been in a fight. Like I've never punched someone or been punched in the face. (laughs) Okay. Um, Again, probably not that surprising. If you've ever spent time with me, I'm not really like a (laughs) a skull cracker, you know, I don't think I give off that vibe. Um, But the third thing that I think maybe at this point I probably should have done is I've never had oysters. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I don't, Think I would like them, but I haven't like actively avoided them. I think a lot of this is growing up in uh where I grew up. So like there's not a lot of seafront property in Arizona, (laughs) despite the fake news coming from George Strait. Um so you're just it's just not really kind of the scene. Like anybody who tried to sell me oysters in Arizona, I'd be like, I am very suspicious of you and wherever (laughs) these came from. And so, um, that's gotta be part of it, but you know, I've traveled plenty and been to places where I could have gotten, gotten oysters, but I just kind of haven't. And maybe cause I didn't really grow up with it. Um, but yeah, so if maybe one day I need to like get in a fight in which I break my hand and then console myself with some quality seafood <laughs> and I could
0: undo all three of these things at once. <laughs> That'll be a really good day. Yeah. yeah it'd be an exciting night. Oh, those are good answers. I never had an oyster until, I would say, like, three or four years ago. And same kind of thing. I mean, I don't know why I didn't have oysters. I didn't grow up in the desert or anything, but I just didn't have them, you know? Yeah. And I guess when you're younger, they don't really sound that appetizing.
1: Yeah, I mean, what kid is eating oysters, you know?
0: No, right, yeah. But I didn't really enjoy it when I had one. I'm like, this kind of just tastes like... You gave me a spoonful of ocean water. Yeah, yeah, yeah
1: they're very polarizing. I think, I think um, people who like them really like them, but I think that's pretty a pretty common response. Is like it's just kind of salty and fishy and very chewy. Although, aren't you supposed to
0: not chew them? Yeah, I think you just kind of slurp them. I don't really. Yeah. Know. Maybe I maybe I didn't have them right with the right sauce or whatever. But who knows? That was my take. Good answer. Uh, My answer is, well, I have a couple, I guess. Um, Or no, I guess I would say like the one big one is, and maybe this is relatable, maybe it's not, but I've never had a meal that costs over $75. Mm, Yep. And would you say that's true for you too?
1: Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And yeah, I, I would agree.
0: Yeah, like I... I know there are people out there who go to the fanciest restaurants and everything, but I have never been in the habit of doing that. And um, while I do really love good food, I typically think that you can find good food at cheaper places than more expensive. For sure.
1: Um, um, yeah. So I, I actually rec- so I, I agree. I'm in the same boat and I actually recently tried to like, like, I want to go and spend like $120 on a crazy right, right. meal just to say like, I've got it it. a night. Yeah. Yeah. Like, maybe it's worth it. Maybe from now on, I'll be like, well, instead of going out four nights and, you know, spending 20 or 30 bucks, I want to go out one night. And, um, but I, it kind of, I couldn't make it happen. So I, I was in New York with um, my brother, friend of the podcast, and we were talking about all the places we wanted to go. And I was like, there's this place called Upland. It's really famous and I've heard about it on all these food podcasts and it's got like President Obama went there and they're famous for all of these fancy dishes. And I was like, wouldn't it be fun if we go and we just spend like crazy money for us on a meal that we can say we've done that. And we just it just kept being like supplanted by, well, but there's these really good dumplings in Chinatown for six Um, bucks. Like, let's go do that, you know. So it never happened. And so I totally, I totally get what you're saying.
0: I would like to do it sometime, like to have the whole, I don't even know how to pronounce it. Is it prefix where you have like the, you pay a certain amount of money and then there's like 16 courses or whatever. Right.
1: Yeah. Like a tasting menu or whatever. Yeah. That
0: sounds like fun to try and everything. I just, it's, I've never come across it before. Well, next and... time in
1: Los Angeles, we should go try this. We'll save oh, our pennies and go do it. <laughs>
0: that's a good idea. I'm I'm very down. All right. So today we are continuing in our series about the Cuban Revolution. We talked last time about an episode in the future, which is the Bay of Pigs invasion. And now we're going to rewind a little bit to before the revolution and give you a sense of the history of Cuba and why Cuba in particular was primed for a revolution. Exactly. Uh, so I'm really excited to talk about this and race. You can lead us in with uh, what about the state of Cuba is asking for a revolution at this point. For sure. So yeah, um...
1: Like Tyler said, this will be kind of like a zoomed out look, and I'm excited to do that because um, Cuba has a really interesting history, something that I um, came across on one of the Wikipedia pages I was kind of um, referencing for this, um, the way they put it, which I think is pretty fair and, and succinct, is that the history of Cuba is characterized by dependence on outside powers, starting mm-hmm. with Spain and including the U.S. and the U.S.S.R., um, which is a really interesting way of thinking about it. So it was, you know, subject to the winds of colonialism in a lot of ways, um, but has fared differently in in other ways. So super interesting. Um, But in order to answer that question, uh, to answer the question, like, what about the state of Cuba made people ready for a revolution since that's what we're talking about? Um, Depending kind of on how you break it down, the revolution basically started in July of 1953 um so we're almost exactly 69 years out from that um and it's approximately the age of my my dad right like the revolution was underway when my dad was born so that's wow. another interesting thing to think about that like modern cuba is barely older and in, in some ways the revolution didn't end until after my dad was born so my dad was born into mm-hmm. like a pre communist cuba um world which is kind of interesting um, but yeah, the situation in Cuba in the early 50s and kind of in general, um, there's a lot we could talk about, but I picked a couple of things that I think will kind of set the stage well for what we're going to talk about. The first one is corruption. Um, I'm fascinated and I, are the podcast kind of in general, we're interested in, um, you know, we've talked about the American Revolution and all of these other revolutions and we're, um, I'm interested in how nations kind of get started like this story that's one reason why the story of the american revolution is very interesting to me and there's so many chances for things to go wrong Mm -hmm. (laughs) like anytime you're setting up a structure like that needs to last for a nation it's just so easy for things to switch hands and to crumble there has to be like wide support and a lot of kind of faith in whatever institution you're setting up um and we'll get into a lot of that as it pertains to cuba but um, but I also think that no matter what the nation is, like the first, if you're starting a country or or any sort of big system like that, like the first 20, 30 years are going to be real messy. That's just my like, opinion. Yeah. Like if you go back <laughs> to the first 20, 30 years after the American Revolution, it's like, man, there was a lot going on like things just weren't you know really stable and the same can definitely be said for um for cuba once it got its independence we'll get into all of that a little bit more but um but to speak about corruption um it was definitely a feature of early cuba um 20th century cuba as it is i think at the beginning of most governments just because you know roots are trying to go down Um, one person commenting on this called um kind of this period of cuban history a um representation of the maximum expression of administrative corruption which is not great um and it was just rife with nepotism and bribery you know the general illegal accumulation of wealth by those in power entire industries and um you know um government everything was just kind of being rigged in favor of certain peoples and families um and so i'm painting with a really broad brush for the whole 20th century basically here but um one president whose name was carlos prio Socaraz was reported to have stolen buckle your seat belts over 90 million dollars in public funds which was equivalent to about a quarter of the annual national budget
0: bonkers (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) that's pretty bad 25 percent of the budget was just going into carlos's pocket like not ideal um and again we're painting i'm painting with a broad brush there were those who were fighting corruption there were periods where it got a little bit better um But there does seem to have been kind of a high tolerance among Cubans for um, for this kind of corruption. Like, I think maybe they were a little bit realistic about the fact that there's not a lot we can do about this. Like, you know, we're we're still trying to get our legs underneath us. And there are people who are taking advantage of the situation. And um, it's also hinted at in the Wikipedia page that there might have also been a little bit of. Kind of begrudging respect for like the audacity of of some of the corruption, which is sort of an interesting idea. Um, I don't know what to think about that. Um, if we fast forward to the fifties, the forties and fifties, um, Bautista, who are going to talk about it a great deal, um, he was the president when the revolution started. You know, he was he went head to head with Castro, um, essentially. And he may have been the worst as far as corruption um, in kind of Cuba's history, even perhaps. Um, you know, the U.S. and and other countries were obviously keeping an eye on things in this part of the world. Um, like we said, there was a lot of fear about communism and all that stuff. And so there was a, a communication between the British foreign office. So, like, you know, they're kind of... Um, their foreign apparatus and the U S state department in the forties. And they were reportedly extremely worried about president Bautista and the corruption. And they described the problem as endemic and exceeding anything which had gone on previously. So again, not really the superlative you want for your presidency. Um, but that is where we're at with in the forties and fifties with um, Bautista in power. The other thing that we'll talk about, um, and kind of we'll get into some really great details of this later, but is um, the economics, the, the, the kind of money situation going on in Cuba around this time. Um, and interestingly, during the Bautista years, kind of mid-century, Cuba actually was pretty good um, financially. Cuba was had high literacy rates and had high, you know, food quality and, and a lot of other things, um, automobile ownership, all that stuff. Um, and that's particularly when compared to other countries in Latin America, so other developing countries. You know, your your Guatemala's, your um, other Central American countries. It actually, in in some ways, was outperforming the economy of um, Italy. It was comparable to the economy of Italy at the time, which was obviously a much older and more stable nation. And its literacy rates were actually better than Spain in the 40s, which is also very interesting. Oh, wow. So yeah, Cuba wasn't doing that bad um, or was in some ways doing quite well. Um, but, but a lot of that was compared to Latin American countries. However, something interesting I came across was that, that wasn't that's not really a useful metric for thinking about kind of Cuban sentiment at the time because Cubans weren't comparing themselves to Latin America nearly as much as they were looking to America and Americans. Um, that makes sense. They're super close to America. They're also an island, so it's not like they share borders with you know other um latin american countries or anything um and cubans at this time were reading american newspapers seeing american movies and music um they traveled to america on vacation it was pretty close and stuff and so in that comparison cuba wasn't so rich so maybe the cuban sentiment at the time would have been more grim than like their actual economic situation um would have really lend itself to which i thought was interesting because you know it does depend depend on what your frame of reference is and if you're comparing yourself to america in 1950 you know we were sort of at the height of um we were really ascendant at the time and so that's i thought that was interesting um and things did start to change by the mid 50s so right right in there with bautista um cuba uh its economy did start to stagnate and with um there was particular um Gap between rich and poor Cubans, which we'll talk about a little bit more. Um, and there was also a lot of American influence on the country in general, but particularly the economy, um, which posed problems. Um, eventually it reached the point, and we'll flesh this out more, but most of the sugar industry was owned by US owners, and um, up to 70% of the like arable land, so the open land in Cuba, was owned by foreign people yeah um which is really interesting and as i was reading this it sort of reminded me about when we discussed last episode about the bay of pigs and you were like well they 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 did a post-mortem and they figured the bay of pigs invasion suffered from bad planning and bad communication and bad leadership and we were like that's all the things um i sort of feel like as we're looking at um cuba teetering on the verge of revolution and particularly like a um, a Marxist, like you know, um uh, socialist revolution. It was like, you, are you guys trying to yeah lead socialists in your country? <laughs> you know, like you're doing all the things that are gonna make these people mad. Yeah, mad. the
0: socialist bingo board. It's pretty much all checked off. It's just lighting <laughs> up. Marxist. Yeah, and
1: we'll we'll talk more about that. But you know, that's really kind of a snapshot, broad brush of. The state of Cuba that might have been sort of priming the culture at large for being interested in a shift, a shift away from Bautista and these other corrupt former presidents, a shift away from sort of the economic model that they were um, dealing with. And, you know, just maybe a, a big shift in general. So they were yeah, they were primed for for a revolution in that sense.
0: So that's a great rundown of the state of Cuba in the 1950s and why it was calling out for revolution. But we also want to take a look at how it got that way. So at this point, we'll go ahead and do a very quick history of Cuba from the beginning until the 20th century. And when I say very quick, I mean very (laughs) quick. We're going to jump leaps and bounds over many centuries. So the history of Cuba is that it was populated in the ancient times by Amerindian peoples. And these peoples in the island of Cuba were conquered in 1492 by Christopher Columbus. He landed first in the Bahamas and then he went over to the island of Hispaniola and then to Cuba. And because of Columbus's conquering, Cuba was ruled by Spain for the next couple of centuries. And there were occasional, occasional rebellions against Spain that failed, especially in the 1800s, I think was probably the one that had the biggest chance of succeeding, but it failed regardless. Um, so Spanish rule continued, but it finally did end in 1898 with the Spanish-American War. And I have to tell you that before reading about this, I did not know that that's what the Spanish-American War did. Mm, Um, So we'll have to table the Spanish-American War for another time. But uh, interestingly enough, it brought about independence for Cuba. After the war, Cuba was handed over to the U.S. for the next few years temporarily. And then it officially gained its independence in 1902. Um, And it was now independent, but it would still take decades before it was governing itself, because anybody who was in power in 1898 had previously been working for the Spanish government. And then for several years afterwards, the people in power had been negotiating with the United States. So it kind of took a while to shake off the chains of Spain and also Mm -hmm. shake off the influence of the United States. After it became independent, the Cuban Republic saw significant economic growth. Um, And there's a lot of reasons for this. Cuba was a very attractive territory because it had really strong sugar farms And it also has really good harbors and it has close proximity to the U.S. Hmm. So foreign investors all over, but especially in the United States, were kind of eyeing Cuba very greedily saying, look at how much money there is to be made here. Um, And unfortunately, as a result, Cuba also saw, as you mentioned, race, the rise of despotic leaders and political corruption. Um, And that ties into, again, the attractive qualities of Cuba um, being used for political gain. So interestingly enough, um, the U.S. was always kind of tied to Cuba for the next many, many years. So like their involvement in the Spanish-American War is what helped Cuba gain independence. Um, And then For the next couple of years you know the u.s would make sure that elections were held and i think they sent in troops to make sure that peace was maintained but unlike some of the other territories that the u.s was annexing at the time we're thinking guam puerto rico the philippines Mm. the u.s never actually annexed cuba and there was good reason for this there was disagreement in u.s politics about US imperialism. And there was a good political platform that argued that we should not annex any other territories, especially not Cuba, because the sugar production in Cuba is going to compete with the sugar production in the United States themselves. Hmm. So both sides were kind of fighting this issue in the US. um, And as a result, they signed an agreement that basically said, the US would not annex Cuba. And I think this is really interesting because it's not coming from Cuba itself. It's not It's not like Cuba said, please don't invade or annex us. This was just some internal issue that the US had to figure out for itself. Hmm. Uh, regardless, we ended up still invading Cuba a few years <laughs> later. Teddy Roosevelt comes into power. And at the same time, the first elected president in Cuba has had his first term, and he goes to rerun again in a second term, and there's a whole revolt. And so his presidency fails. TR invades Cuba on the pretense of protecting free elections, and then the U.S. maintains a presence in Cuba for a couple of years, and then eventually leaves, saying it looks like Cuba's back on its feet. Um, unfortunately, the history of Cuba in the 20th century really does seem to be corrupt politicians. And it's just it, if you look through the article, it's just like one president after the next is going into the election saying, I'm going to stop the corruption, promising to stop it, and then they get into power and they only make it worse. So anybody who's in power is basically exchanging political favors. There are very lucrative contracts, especially in the sugar industry that are being awarded to basically the parties who could pay the biggest bribe. Um, And it's kind of horrifying to see how the function of government in this kind of sphere is not really doing anything for the Cuban public. Mm. It's just kind of feeding whoever the richest person is that can pay for the bribe. Yeah. So then in 1940, we have Fulgencio Batista enter the scene. We've hinted at him so many times. I think we talked about him last episode too. Um, the villain of the story. He runs for president and he was endorsed by communist leaders in his run. And he, wa- he wins the election on a very populist platform. So arguing for the cause of the people. He has a term as president for four years, and then his term is over, and he moves to Florida in the United States, but then he comes back in 1952, and he runs again, and in the election, there were three people running, and the early polls showed him as doing the worst out of all three um, contestants or candidates so he refuses to accept this and instead of uh, going quietly he decides he will grab the military and he'll stage a coup d'etat and he stages a bloodless coup no one is killed but he does oust the previous president and he cancels the presidential election for that year and then he places himself as the quote-unquote provisional president and then he rules cuba for seven more years after that. And even though he had been supported by the communist party initially in his first go round, in the second go round he was fiercely anti-communist. So kind of flipping on the message that he had run before and obviously took the government in a way that the commun- or the cuban people literally we're not asking for he was last place in the election
1: (laughs) well thank goodness nothing like that could ever happen today right Uh, right (laughs) um so unfamiliar right um so this is a good kind of it's just emblematic of what i'm talking about we're like i feel like this is so easy to happen where it's just like all right we're gonna have an election but like the, i don't know we just our norms aren't established or like we're susceptible to uh, a coup like this so some dude is going to rush in and 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 you know kind of strong arm his way into something well then the next time when he dies or if there is another election or whatever like it's just going to happen again because there's no like precedent there's no foundation there's no respect or like trust yeah. in the system and so you see this often sadly in the um i guess what you could call the developing world what honestly is usually like people who are um and nations who are sort of trying to escape from colonialism like they got you know colonized and whatever happened and then we're like oh yeah okay uh sorry about that and you know portugal or spain or the u.s or whoever is like okay you guys go do your own thing and then we act surprised when it's like oh this that wasn't the ideal way to do things but like If you look in, you know, Africa or Central America or whatever, like you see this a lot throughout history and definitely even going on now, like, you know, in Ethiopia, uh, Ethiopia, maybe. I know that Sudan has had very similar problems recently where it's just like, oh, yeah, some general now says he's the president. And like a lot of people agree. And so I guess he is the president. And it's just so like you don't really know what to trust and like what counts. Like what when does this person, you know. If everybody says it counts, then it counts. And so if some guy is just like, you know, if Batista's is just like, well, well, I'm actually going to cancel that election and I'm already president yeah. because I say I am. And if people are just like, all right, then you kind of are.
0: And um, you you realize how powerless people are in that kind of setting, right? It's not like. I mean he has yeah. the military so what are you gonna you can't just like take it back
1: right yeah and i mean that it truly is a, like a tale as old as time well it gets a bunch of military people together i mean we've talked about this with um in you know medieval england we've talked about it yeah in, uh-huh. you know in argentina <laughs> all these places like it just it's just what kind of unfortunately happens and so this is this is right at a sweet spot that i'm really interested in because I first of all, I find it fascinating that by and large, and particularly early on, as a matter of fact, like exclusively and astonishingly early on, the United States avoided this. Mm -hmm. Like we didn't have um, we had kind of small scale versions of this, but there was never like some huge crisis of like, well, now what do we do? Or like this person, you know, nobody ever kind of bullied their way into the presidency. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with Washington and his approach yeah. to it, we've talked about this in previous episodes, but yeah. I do I do find it really interesting because it's like it just underscores the fact that like, government is mostly made up. It's like money, right? Like, it's very real, but it's only real because everyone's like, yeah, we have to listen to these people or, or yeah, like, this person's president now. And, and if- it's
0: so fragile, right? Like, that's the scary thing about reading these stories is it's like, as soon as the illusion is dispelled it's over you know and as long as everyone's agreeing to play along then we're doing fine but once it's questioned then it's gone
1: yeah and i'm also interested about the fact i totally agree with what you've said and in some ways it's in some ways (laughs) it's almost better like you know what even if this illusion isn't perfect like if we can just have consistent illusions, yeah. <laughs> like, consistency strikes me as a huge commodity here, even if it's like, well, that wasn't how that was supposed to go, or we're not. It's like, it does, as long as we're just doing it the same way every time we kind of set the goalposts. Yeah. No, this, this is all very stressful. And like you said, uh, you know, that's because it, it does feel really relevant today. But I mean, yeah, you're right. Fragile is, is a great word for, for all of this so that's batista that's kind of where we're at with him he's um he's in office and like tyler said um by second term he becomes uh kind of virulently anti-communist um that couldn't be you know encapsulated any better than the fact that he set up a bureau for the repression of communist activities
0: <laughs> uh, oh, so yeah a
1: whole wing of the government and um this had a, several i mean probably a lot of the things that you can imagine in it um he established tighter censorship of the media um and there was wide-scale violence and pushback on people who were engaging in what was perceived to be you know um like seditious communist activity, Um, there was violence, torture and public executions, as is often the case with, um, you know, kind of horrors like this. It's hard to say exactly how many people are affected, you know, if there's government killings, like how do you count that? Because the government's probably not keeping good track. Um, You know, they're probably not like these are all of the extrajudicial atrocities we committed today. So they're obviously likely to massively undercount if they count at all. And, um, you know, people observing, especially if they're hypercritical of a ruthless government, might be inclined to overcount. But um, it's possible that there may have been as many as 20,000 people executed um, during Bautista's time. Wow. At the head of Cuba Um, could obviously be lower than that. But, you know, it's not not unreasonable to think that there could have been 20,000 people, which is a lot. Um, These murders kind of mounted um, as um, the 50s continued and into like the middle of the revolution. So like in 57, um, they were particularly high. um, And this is as socialism is kind of building and the revolution had already begun. Castro is kind of a popular figure already. Um, So that's not great. I would say if we're asking the question, what did Bautista do to fix the situation or worse, than the situation, that probably wasn't great. Again, how do you make a communist? Well, you make martyrs out of people who are trying to peacefully, you know, <laughs> that's a great way to do this. Um, um, another thing that I thought was was interesting um, was sort of the foreign influence and particularly like organized crime and organized vice. Um, so under post-coup Batista, so Batista in the 50s, uh cuba was kind of one big hedonistic party um there was drugs there was like a huge number of sex workers gambling it was all there um if you're thinking of the godfather part two that is you are correct (laughs) um and the the american you know organized crime was present there and You know, all any type of corruption you can think of with the government actively involved in the importation of drugs, everything from, you know, pop, cocaine, every, all of that. Yes, yes, yes. And yes, it was happening. Um, And it was very popular for foreigners, um, particularly Americans, to visit because, um, I mean, I, I think somewhere in the wiki page it talks about like what Vegas is now, Cuba then was like mm. it was just a huge kind of sin city playground type thing so if you were you know a wealthy uh wealthy post-war dude in South Carolina or whatever well yeah you hop on a plane or whatever and you go down to Havana and you you have your uh, your you know your debauchery down there and gambling was legal in ways that it wasn't here and all of that stuff um Arthur Miller, the famous American playwright, he talked about Batista's Cuba and he described it as hopelessly corrupt, a mafia playground, a bordello for Americans and other foreigners. Um, and I could, I th- 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 pondering on this, it's like, that's a problem for two reasons. One is you're creating, a let's call it a unique <laughs> culture and like vibe for your little island, right? Um, in the same way that Vegas is like, yeah, it's, they've got their own thing going, like, you know, say what you will, you might love it, you might hate it, but like, it might not be for everyone to live (laughs) right off the strip in Vegas, right? And so um, a tiny island that's just sort of overrun with a lot of that, that's a cultural, might be a kind of a cultural clash, especially for these more rural and Mm -hmm. agricultural people, you have these two worlds, one that's full of drunk Americans, you know, chasing sex workers and and drinking too much and then you know these villagers and it's i don't know that would just could you could see sort of a tension there um second and um you can notice who miller alludes to and it's foreigners non-cubans um and once again this is a unique setup um you're at the mercy economically and otherwise of non-cubans and i think any place that sort of deals in um tourism or kind of outside money as a main sort of driver of an economy has to deal with this sort of double-edged sword um i i actually was thinking about um eager my little town where i'm from um it is actually quite a lot of our um economy is um dictated by tourism so elk hunting is extremely popular there's lots of oh, it's yeah. This time of year, um, well, as you saw, Tyler, you came to my house in Florence, and it was 112 degrees. And then you drive up to Eager, and it's 85, right? And so, yeah. in the summertime, we just get packed. I think when we were there, you and I went to the grocery store, and I was like, "This place is a madhouse." Yeah, because <laughs> there were you know 18 people standing in line at the grocery store, and I was like, "This is this is a, you know crazy talk," and uh, and and so I'm I'm kind of sensitive to like that idea because on one hand um and we would have these conversations as like us little people in eager it'd be like you know when the fourth of july or memorial day these kind of holidays by the end of the kind of weekend you'll literally hear people say this like all right just get out of here guys like everybody just go yeah, home let our little town it, right yeah. yeah you resent it a little bit you know it's like oh, these people who aren't you know but then at the same time it's like if these people stop coming here and enjoying our, you know, lovely Fourth of July and our nice weather and our great elk hunting and our great, you know, um, cool, cool weather or whatever, then you know our economy would suffer a great deal. And you know, there's a, a million versions of this. Entire countries like Cuba can kind of have this double-edged sword situation. Um, cities, you know, I, you could think of like Utah during ski season. It's like just overrun with new people, and it's a, a blessing and a curse. And so Cuba was in that situation. Um, with not just like, oh, yeah, we're dependent on foreigners, but like foreigners who are coming here to gamble and to be, you know, kind of big, loud, ugly Americans. Um, so again, how do you make a communist? Well, that'll probably, that, that'll that help. <laughs> like bring in a bunch of rich um, people from some country who kind of are going to treat you poorly and, and expand like this, um, you know, wealth gap in the country. So you've got... Um, You've got sort of ultra rich areas or at least like ultra touristy areas. And then, you know, outside of it, you've got. Um, you know, well, uh, so um, I, I actually have a quote from David Delzer, an American journalist. He went to Van in the 50s and he talked about all the stuff that he saw. Same thing Arthur Miller was describing. And He said, beyond the outskirts of the capital, beyond the slot machines was one of the poorest and most beautiful countries in the Western world. So you know, you go you go just beyond the neon lights, and you've just you've got people living in in you know very rural and and um, a lot of po- po- you know a poverty situation, and so yeah, you're setting people up to be like, you know, if some lawyer with a great beard came along and was like, it doesn't have to be like this, you know, <laughs> you might you might pick up your uh your uh your shotgun and be like, I'm going with that guy, yeah, um, because you know just just the way that it was and so um, I would definitely say that what did Bautista do to fix or worsen the situation he mostly didn't help right like <laughs> getting into bed with the mob and you know really cracking down in a completely inhumane and um, you know horrifically criminal way on communists none of that was really great and it it just added flame to the fire that um, you know is what this whole series is about which is Cuba rebelling against Bautista so Yeah, not a great move on
0: on Batista's part. So John F. Kennedy has two quotes that I think are really interesting about the state of Cuba at this time. They're interesting because I find them to be, first of all, really explicit, whereas I think a lot of presidential quotes can kind of be kind of vague. Um, And also they're somewhat critical of the United States. And I think that's also rare among presidential quotes. One is, he says, at the beginning of 1959, United States companies owned about 40% of the Cuban sugar lands, almost all the cattle ranches, 90% of the mines and mineral concessions, 80% of the utilities, practically all the oil industry, and supplied two-thirds of Cuba's imports. That doesn't even sound like a quote by John F. Kennedy. That just sounds like a list in the encyclopedia.
1: Now you're just listing things. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. you're
0: just listing things. Um, But I find that really fascinating. And it's starting to feel, uh, maybe this is an undue comparison, but to me it feels a little bit like the French Revolution, where you start to have like a big, rich ruling class that the poor people who are actually living in the country have no ability to deal with and of course they're going to resent that and um want to have a revolution yeah so i mean and you've got united states companies owning the land, like the people, the working class of Cuba doesn't even have the ability to come in and own the land anymore because it's owned by the United States.
1: Yeah. And in that sense, it's it's almost worse than like the French situation where it's not just like, hey, our rulers, like the, the people who are, you know, lawfully in charge of us are being a bunch of jerks. It's like, we're getting beat up and getting treated like dirt by these jerks. And they're not even... Our leaders like this what if they were germans just, right yeah, yeah like it's just they rich didn't america. even live yeah, yeah <laughs> they didn't even can,
0: live in the same place
1: yeah you can see how that just would make you so much more bitter like and on top of all of this mistreatment like you guys shouldn't even be here like why yeah. why does america own 90 of the of the mines like you can see how that would just instantly you know create like some incendiary yeah, yeah
0: totally uh-huh so you've got that going into it and it When we think about like who at this point is supporting a revolution, it's difficult for me not to imagine like everybody, (laughs) you know, if you're not Batista, if you're not the military, it kind of seems like you're supporting the revolution. So Kennedy has another quote, and that is to do with how the United States handled uh, the Cuban situation. He says... I believe that there is no country in the world, including any and all the countries under colonial domination where economic colonization, humiliation, and exploitation were worse than in Cuba, in part owing to my country's policies during the Batista regime. I approved the proclamation which Fidel Castro made in the Sierra Maestra when he justifiably called for justice and especially yearned to rid Cuba of corruption. I will even go further. To some extent, it is as though Batista was the incarnation of a number of sins on the part of the United States. Now we shall have to pay for those sins. In the matter of the Batista regime, I am in agreement with the first Cuban revolutionaries. That is perfectly clear. Hmm. So that is quite indicting. And he's suggesting here that... The horrors committed by Batista are the result of United States influence. Yeah. And I think in another, he has a lot of quotes about this. <laughs> in another quote, he goes uh, so far as to name Eisenhower specifically for turning a blind eye to what was happening with Batista and kind of encouraging mm. it. Yeah. So We are primed now at this moment (laughs) for a revolution. We've got the powder keg all ready to go. um, And soon we will see the effects of the revolution when Fidel Castro steps in. Yeah.
1: And I mean, we will obviously be getting to this in future episodes and that JFK um, quote kind of gets to it. But I was surprised to find, and like I said, we'll talk more about this, but there was actually like pretty widespread approval in like the American intelligence and like like the same CIA who would later be like yeah let's let's pull a bay of pigs on these people were're like yeah, you go Fidel Castro they saw it as like a pro oh, yeah okay. movement which again kind of highlights as we've talked about in the previous episode like the perils of rooting for some new you know movement in in some place that's that's not your country. you're like, yeah we like that well okay until they you know are like and we now that we've you know established a more democratic situation well now we we want to introduce socialism and they're like ooh okay we don't love that you know so, <laughs> but yeah really fascinating to hear jfk saying that and um yeah to know that this revolution which is clearly coming from the conversation we've just had um was kind of welcomed by the by the us um they just maybe didn't expect it to be to go the way that it did but they were in some ways encouraged by the rise of fidel castro at least in the beginning
0: no footnotes today join us next time when we talk about the moment of revolution castro's rise to power and the 26th of july movement we'll see you then